Snap Studios. I was too little a kid to know anything about cars, but my uncle pulls up with this gleaming turquoise Cadillac. I know it's sharp. My cousins know it too. Whoa! Snap! Wow! Jumping up and down, all excited. My uncle slides out of the driver's side, sporting a suit the same color as his gleaming automobile, smiling like he just invented the sunny day. I suck in the new car smell through the slightly open window. Uncle! Uncle! Can we go for a ride? Uh-uh! See, ain't no dirty little boys get up in my car. I know good and well he's going to give us a ride. Please! Please! He grins over at my dad, my auntie, my mama. And instead of grinning back, they frown in disgust. And I wonder how they're just going to hate on my uncle like this. It takes me several years to piece it all out. But I'm going to give the game away to you in the title of this episode. Because today on Snap Judgment, we proudly present Con Man Daddy. where love, family, and criminality are mixed into the same stew. My name is Gun Washington. Understand, a Honda Civic after the car wash gleams just as bright as a brand new caddy when you're listening to Snap Judgment. We begin with a chase. Sirens get louder and louder. Wind whipping onto the sticky, cramped back seat as a family of outlaws fly full tilt down the Texas back road with their tail in full pursuit, Jack. I'll let Jason take it from here. The cop was so close to us, we can make out his face. We're in a pacer, which there's no way it can go faster than a cruiser. But they're following us, and they're getting closer and closer. In the 70s, if you could make it to the county line, then they would stop chasing you. And it was times like these that we're in it together. We're rooting for ourselves. We're not saying, Dad, why'd you do this again? We're going, no, go, 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 go. That's a county line. It's a county line. You know, there's one of those green signs, you know, and we step on it. The little car is going as fast as it can. We cross the county line. And those cruisers, there were two of them in this case, they just sort of dropped off. And then we're just on to the next thing. My name is Jason Russell Waller. I'd like to tell you about my father. Sometimes the shape of a person can draw you in, and sometimes a voice can draw you in. And uh, my father was, um, he was shaped like Winnie the Pooh, and he had a voice with a southern ease. So before you even met him, you liked him. My dad, he definitely had the wow factor. He was a leader, a natural leader. He was, uh, he, he worked, uh, he worked at church. He was the assistant pastor. He was on the chamber of commerce, involved with city council. He was always involved in things that required wearing a tie. He dressed like the city, but he always had that good old boy charm, kind of that 
that country charm was always with him. So he was really quite the man about town. I was five years old and living in a nice house on a nice street in Austin, Texas. And my father had a, a great new job at National Bank where he was vice president. I remember really good times playing with my brothers. To us as children, things seemed like they were really, uh, really good. But how that all broke up was we had a babysitter and one day our babysitter, he came by in a Corvette, a new Corvette. He took us all for rides. Uh, it wasn't long after that he went to jail for uh, bank robbery. Now, he worked at the same bank where my father was vice president. We never got the full scoop on what happened. All we knew is that somehow our father was related to this robbery because he we now had to leave town. He was no longer working at a national bank and it was time to hit the road. And from that moment on, that was in end of 1976, that began our 10 years on the road and on the run. In the beginning, what he did was he would go into a big company and sell himself as a marketing director, talking them into, wow, you know, you have this and you, you're doing great here and I can see this and I've read about you in the newspaper, but what you really need is a promotion. I'm a great promotions guy. And he would just do his thing and do his slickery talk. He would say... There's a trade show, and oh, this would be so good if we could get there. But what we need is we need some supplies, and we need a hotel, because it would, what would be great is if you could come and your wife, and, and this guy could come and that guy. And it's in Colorado. Wow, wouldn't that be great? If their skiing is going on there. We could all be there, too. When I look at it, it's going to cost about $10,000. So what I would need to do is go up there ahead of time, and uh, I'll check it all out. And, of course, there was never a trade show. There was never any of these things. And he'd get the $10,000 check, and we'd scoot town. Most of our life on the run was in cars. You know, I don't know where they came from. I don't know where they went, but we had a new car all the time. We didn't even see them disappear. We just remember that our father would maybe leave early in the morning and then he'd come back later and it was a different car. They all were junk. All of them had chitty, chitty, bang, bang type sounds coming out of them. And we were in the back seat. So there was a lot of looking out the window and seeing myself as a cowboy on a horse running, galloping beside the car. I'm a stuntman on a motorcycle, and I see myself on this motorcycle jumping and hopping, and, and I'm imagining myself outside the window thinking, I have to go on. I have to keep going. At some point, we're going to get out of this. 
when we were living on the road, we were living an adventure, no doubt. When dad wasn't lying or stealing, he was a hell of a lot of fun. I mean, we were always going to amusement parks, state fairs, rodeos, whatever was going on in the town we were passing through, he would take us there and he enjoyed it, you know, as much as we did. Even when we had no money at all, he was still the provider of fun. We'd be in a motel and then at night, my father, I was a night owl and, and, and he allowed me to stay up and, and watch late night television as long as I, I, I turned it down way low. And uh, so I'd watch Monty Python and Benny Hill and old gangster movies until the uh, station signed off the air. <laughs> it sounds like a small thing, but he did this all my life. He would secretly buy me a Coke. He slips me a cold Coca-Cola that he bought earlier from the vending machine so that I can have a Coke while I watch these old movies. I think my father saw a lot of himself in me, and so he treated me like I had something special. It made me feel like he understood me in a way, and for that, we had a, a connection, I felt, a special connection. As time went on during these long car journeys, the Pepto-Bismol sort of became a um, barometer of the trouble that we were in. If we were living fat for a while off of some big scam that he had done, everything was going okay. You didn't really see the bottle, and you didn't notice that the bottle was gone, but you definitely noticed when the Pepto-Bismol bottle reappeared because that meant, oh, man, okay, the good stuff is over, and it's, it's, uh, it's time to run again. There is a sudden knock on the door, and it's a couple of sheriffs. And our father is... I mean, right around the other wall. We opened the door. They're asking where he's at. Have you seen him? When's the last time you've seen him? And they're, you know, they're looking over our shoulders the whole time. And he is, you know, he's in a closet. He's just in a, clo a grown-ass man hiding in a closet. We were sold on sort of this yellow brick road idea that we're going down this road, but it's leading to somewhere that's bigger, brighter, shinier. There's something at the end of this. Our mindset was that just just keep doing what you're doing, keep counting the fence posts, because eventually you're not going to have to. It gave us hope that something great was going to be at the end of this road. When we became teenagers, I was working on being an actor, and I thought, cool, I think I can crack into this acting thing. I'll at least start trying. For some reason, Austin, Texas, in the 80s and 90s, it was a real hotbed of, of uh, activity for, for films. And I went on an audition, and it was for a miniseries, and it was a big deal. Uh, it starred 
Sam Elliott. And so I went on the audition. I got the audition. First big, great thing that I, I could ever do. It was quite a turning point for me. It was, you know, when you think about life being mostly curves, this was definitely an angle. Things can change for me after this. My goal was to save $10,000. I thought $10,000, if I put that amount of money away after high school, I could take that money, go live in California and give the acting thing a try, you know. And I just thought that was sort of the number in my head was $10,000. Well, when I got this part, I signed a contract for $7,500. And then they paid me another $3,500 after I had done the acting part. So right off the bat, you know, I've already got the money. I took the $10,000 and I put it in the bank and did not touch it, had no need to touch that money because this was my pathway to my dream. While I was on that set, Sam Elliott and I were pretty friendly because I was right next to him through all of my scenes. My scenes were with him. After this movie, he was doing one in Arizona and um, he said, I think you'd be good for the part of, you know, whatever, however Sam Elliott talks, but he said, um, he said, there's this part of a teenage son and you should go to Arizona and I'll put in a good word for you. To be able to go to Arizona and be in this movie by law, I had to have a parent or guardian. You'll never guess who was available. When we return, will acting save Jason from his father's life of crime? Stay tuned. Snap Judgment, the Con Man Daddy episode. When last we left, Jason had just landed a new role in a movie in Arizona, but his up-to-no-good father decided to make the trip with him. Snap Judgment. I was scared, thinking, God, please don't talk to anybody because you're going to rip somebody off that I'm trying to uh, get in this movie, but... He was completely minding his manners. He, say, he seemed to be mellowing. So when I went to Arizona, we're living in a little condo that is um, on a golf course. I'm having a, a fine time as a teenager. I'm enjoying the school I'm going to. He bought me a moped so I could get back and forth. So things are going what feels pretty good. Everything feels pretty normal. I come home one day, and I look down in his hand, and he's got a thing of Pepto-Bismol. And I hadn't seen him drink from a bottle in a long time. So when I saw him drinking that Pepto-Bismol bottle, I went, oh, man, what, you know something's not right he told me that some crimes he had done from the past had caught up with him he hadn't done anything new and that 
they were after him and we had to leave right away so there we go in the cloak of night just like we did many times before and in the middle of the night we drove from arizona and we kept going until we got to texas to my uh, grandparents home things are not good you know things don't feel good i'm getting a strange feeling I had transferred that $10,000 from Austin to a bank in Arizona. So I, I called the Arizona bank and I needed to check how much money did I have in my account. And she told me, you know, what, what, how much I had left in my account. And I said, I just, I want to make sure I heard you correctly. Can you repeat that? And she said, $11. $11. In that moment, I was numb. This was the money that I was putting down on a dream. My father has known my dreams my whole life. He knew how important this was to me. And he didn't just rob his son, he stole his son's dream. And I'm trying to figure out how, how, how do you do this? How do you do this? All of these things are just going around in my head. I was out in the pasture, but I see my father, he's walking out, you know, looked like he was looking for me and he's, he's walking towards me. And I can tell by his face, he doesn't know that I know. And his face changes and he says, what's wrong, son? I said, I called the bank. His face sunk. I, I had never seen my father's face do this. And without me saying anything more than I called the bank, he started spitting out lies like they're coming out of a Gatlin gun. Oh, no, no, Jay, the, 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 the bank, they're, no, they've messed it up. Oh, well, I decided to have that transferred to so-and-so, and this is the, it's still there. I mean, it was, because he was coming up with these lies on the, on the fly, these were the worst lies I've ever heard him tell. These were terrible. I was telling him, come on, come on, Dad, Dad, you're lying, you're lying. I called the bank. My dad turned. He was scared. He was white. And he started trotting back to my grandparents' house like a fat little pony. He started trotting back to the house. Like, what, what is he? He's running away from me? I looked down many times when I walked out to my, my, my grandparents' pasture. I brought an a old twenty two carbine rifle with me. That was my grandfather's. The whole time I'm talking to my dad and asking him how and why, 
I forgot that I was holding a rifle. And that's why he was looking at me, and that's why he ran away. I thought, oh my God, he thought I was out here and I was gonna murder him. And I'm glad I forgot that the gun was there. When we uh, went separate ways, when I stayed in Texas and he went to Colorado, I didn't have a lot of contact with him. The contact I was getting was from the single women who keep finding my number and calling me and saying, Are you the son of Rough and Snow? Actually, it was one of the n- names he used. That was quite a name. And I would say, no, but I am Jason. And I know, okay, that, you know, they're looking for my father. And I said, I don't know where he's at. We were supposed to get married. I gave him money for your operation. He was saying that I had cancer and that I was dying of cancer. I don't know what kind of operation you were going to have that I was going to have with cancer. And I had to tell all of these women the same thing, which was, uh, you've, you've been taken. I don't need an operation. I mean, it just got low, you know, it just got, it just got, it is low. I get one more of these calls, and this woman's name is Connie. She's from Colorado. She's looking for Bill Frank, and she had given him, I believe, $5,000. That's all she had. Um, She had a small savings. And I heard from Connie again a couple of weeks later. She tells me, Your father came back, and he asked me to marry him, and and we are going to get married. But... He wanted me to let you know that an anonymous call was made, and he's in jail right now. And he's going to be there for a while. Ten years. The district attorney that put him away had uh, people speaking against him. The the district attorney could not stand all the, the terrible things that my dad had done to other people. So he, he gave him the maximum that he could, which was the 10 years, and he would have to pay restitution on taxes, on money that he had stolen. The sense of relief, knowing that he was away, felt incredible. It felt like I could breathe. He's serving a sentence of 10 years. During this time, my father tries to contact me. He tries to call me. He sends me letters. He would have his celly, you know, the guy who shared the cell with him, draw pictures for me. Um, He made me a belt. I read these things. I opened them. I never wrote him back. I didn't want anything to do with my father. I was so... Relieved for the first time, I felt like this is my life, not yours. In typical dad fashion, he makes the district attorney like him. He writes him letter after letter. He starts doing all these great things in prison, and he gets the district attorney that put him away for 10 years to reduce his sentence to three years. I thought, well, I'm going to have to take his call when he gets out because I know he's going he's gonna to find me. 
And so he called when he got out. He was making his way to Texas, and he wanted to see me. And I said, okay, I wanted to get this over with. I knew it was coming. And it was awkward. The conversation barely got started when he said, you know, I... I was down for three years, Jay. You never took my calls. You never wrote me back. I just, you know, I got to know, son, was it you? Was it you who turned me in? Was it me who turned him in? He doesn't say I'm I'm sorry. He doesn't say I wasn't in my right mind. I wasn't, the things I did were wrong. All he wants to know is was it you? Are you the one who turned me in? Am I? Of all the people, I mean, of all the people that he stole from, everybody, everybody he met, every person he met, he ripped off. You know, and in the end, he's he's taking these single, vulnerable women and taking their life savings and, and hitting the road. And all these years, I protected him. And how dare he ask me if I'm the one of all the people, am I the one who turned him in? I, you know, I didn't say this, but in my mind, I'm thinking, good God, Dad, you put you there. You are the one who put you in jail. And so when he asked that of me, a lot of things circling around in my head. And in that moment, I decided to become the thing that I despised the most. I decided to be a liar, just like him. like father, like son. So when he said, I just got to know, was it you? Were you the one who turned me in? I, I, I looked at him and I said, no, no, dad. I, no, what? I didn't turn you in. Jason Waller, as well as his brothers, Randy and Kel, for sharing their story with The Snap. The original score for this piece was by Renzel Gorio. It was produced by Bo Walsh. In just a moment, Snappers, understand that sometimes a con takes a true artist, like an actual artist, stay. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? 
Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Con Man Daddy episode. My name is Ken Washington, and our next story comes to Snap from the rarefied world of art. And as you will soon discover, the first mistake anyone can make when trying to get away with suspicious behavior is to mess around with the wrong person's money. Snap Judgment. When I was in high school, my uncle Ron and his family moved from New York City out to the Burbs to Maplewood, New Jersey. My uncle was an artist, and Maplewood wasn't exactly a thriving hub of the art world, especially compared to the city. So when he opened a gallery on a rundown back street, everyone thought it was kind of quaint. But then one day I heard from some of my family that something peculiar had happened and that Uncle Ron's little gallery was getting attention. This is how Uncle Ron explains it. I was going into a gallery one day, and this kind of quiet, shy black guy was standing outside, and I asked him if he wanted to come in. He acted a little reluctant, but he did come in. And then he just sort of stood there and looked at me, and he handed me an AMP bag, which I opened up and was full of these little cardboard paintings. Most of them were like sort of magical-looking still lives, little sailboats and teardrops. Other ones were of slaves and various kind of slave encumberments. I said, these are great, you know, I'd like to show these here. And he left them and he never told me his name, never, never spoke at all. Every time I asked him a question that was personal, he would just put his hands up to his lips and said, shh. He said he wasn't quite sure what to make of the encounter. But then a few days later, another clue appeared. In the back, outside the gallery, Ron found a suspicious package. There was a box. Inside the box were all these hundreds of little pieces of broken styrofoam with a little note on top of it, which was a a way of how to put the thing together. It was actually a a broken up large painting that had to be reassembled. And after uh, two days of assembling it, it was a eight by eight foot, sort of a somber looking, dark, someone coming out of the darkness with light eyes, a slave with a noose around his neck. So even though my Uncle Ron said he still didn't know anything about this guy, he decided to hang the art up in the gallery and introduce his work to the world. The paintings were great, and I was just going to show them. And, you know, if I sold any of them, he would get the money. A lot of people showed a lot of interest, and when they heard the story, of course, it was like, wow, I'm really interested. And then the word sort of got out, and sort of a firestorm started. And the show was, you know, an incredible success. Everything sold, and people, a lot of New York collectors were very interested in it. Word of Ron's anonymous artist rippled through the art world. And before long, an art critic for the New York Times, Barry Schwabsky, was reviewing the show. He was, you know, very impressed with the show. He really liked it. Gave it a very good review, along with a bunch of question marks, since the artist was anonymous. And that brought a lot of people in. Once the Times wrote about it, it was on. 
the art was selling, the small ones were going for 150 bucks, and the large ones about 900. The show made about $25,000. It got so much attention. It was like an artist's dream, you know, selling it all out. Things were great, but with success came scrutiny. And then there were collectors who wanted to find out who he was. Well, I said, I didn't have any idea of how to get a hold of him, where to find him. And they suggested maybe they should hire a private detective. And I was like, man, you know, I don't really think so. And that's when my uncle decided things had gone too far. He called up the New York Times writer who had gotten him all the attention and said he needed to set the record straight. That's when I called up Schwabsky and told him that I was the anonymous artist. There was no mysterious black man with a plastic bag. My uncle Ron was the anonymous artist. So then Ron picked up the phone, called everyone who had purchased the art, and fessed up. I called people up and said, look, this is the truth, this is the story. So if you still want the piece, then it's fine. If you don't, then that's fine too. A lot of people didn't want the piece. A lot of people were really pissed off. The ramifications of it for me was that I discovered that creating a fictional artist was really more than I had bargained for because I think everybody came suspicious of me after that. My uncle's world fell into two camps, those that were impressed with his artistic genius and those that felt betrayed. So there was this battleground between the two groups of people. I was surprised about, you know, the people who took it the hardest and the people who took it the best. The people that got mad about the race issue were mostly white collectors who thought I was using race, you know, as manipulation for them to buy work. And most of the black people, a lot of black people bought work, were very supportive about the idea because they thought it exposed racism. I wouldn't say it was fistfights, but there was, like, very angry feelings expressed. Among the angriest was Ron's own wife because she was also tricked. My cousin Aaron, Ron's son, says he knew all along his dad was really the anonymous artist, but for some reason his mom didn't. I thought it was silly that people that knew him well, like my mom, didn't know it was hit. Like, you could walk down into the basement and just see all the work. I feel like since he was saying it wasn't him, that was more important than anything she saw. Aaron's mom, who's now passed away, had been defending my uncle and the anonymous artist all over town. One of the reasons my mother was so upset was because, yeah, she she was sticking up for him. People that would say, this seems like Ron's work. She'd be like, no, it's not. I'm not proud that he had to keep it from certain people. But I think he would have his own reasons for that, and you'd have to ask him what those reasons were. I needed people, believe me, to build up the art, to build up the belief myself. People's belief in it made it stronger. So, yeah, her belief, since she was around me a lot, and I was talking to her about it all the time, made it grow. I think she understood, and I think she she was fine with it in the end. My uncle says his social and artistic experiment was a success. But the repercussions to my family were the price we all paid. Almost 15 years later, my mom is still really pissed at him. And my cousin Aaron says he hopes his dad learned a lesson. The problem is, when you hurt someone's feelings, no matter who it is, but especially your wife's feeling, there's a problem. And no matter what he says, I think if he got to do it over, he wouldn't have hurt anyone's feelings. But for my uncle Ron, it wasn't so simple. 
I think that having hurt feelings is not bad, is it? I mean, it's sort of is a way of growing in some ways. I mean, I hate to make it, you know, you hurt somebody and they grow, but the thing was about emancipation. It was freeing people from the constrained idea of how things work and how, how things operate. And I mean, it all ended peacefully. No one got killed. A few years later, my uncle moved to Philly. And these days, he's got a little gallery there. Well, actually, he calls it a collection, not a gallery. It's a collection of artists who may not exist or fabricated artists who may not exist. So my identity is not local. It's infinite. It keeps on growing. The anonymous artist is still living well on the street, creating art. That story was produced by Andrew Stelzer and Snaps Anna Sussman. To find out more about Ron Cohen's, or should we just call him the anonymous artist, his ongoing shenanigans, we're going to have links to those New York Times articles if you want to check those out. Find out more on our website, snapjudgment.org. next story was told at Snap Live by a dear friend of mine, Mr. Shannon Kaysen. And Shannon, Shannon likes to put it on the line. Please put your hands together for Mr. Shannon Kaysen. on the blackjack table and overdrew my checking account another thousand chasing that original 1200 but being that I was chasing I lost that thousand fast the ride home is always the worst the regret the names I call myself idiot I lived with my sister at the time she could always tell if I had lost all my money, I'd come in the house late or early, depending on how you looked at it. And I had this depressed look and a bag of ramen noodles to make it through to the next pay. But this time, the next direct deposit would be eaten up by the negative balance in my checking account. I looked at it early. I had to be to work in a few hours. I worked at a bank. One of these grocery store banks, I, I, I managed it. I had to be there on time to open the doors for the tellers, get their drawers out of the vault. I put on my suit. I always felt like an ass wearing a suit managing a grocery store bank. <laughs> it's too much. They need to loosen up the dress code. I love suits, but come on, man. This St. Wall Street is a grocery store. I never noticed the bank's money. I lose all my money, put 20,000 in 20s in the ATM the next day. 
no temptation. But that day, I noticed. I noticed the 20,020s. I noticed the 30,100s. I noticed we never followed the dual vault control procedure. I noticed the tellers could go days without having to buy money from the vault because we weren't a busy branch. I didn't notice my morals, my sense of right and wrong, the consequences. There was this overwhelming temptation inside of me that was frightening. You can't lose a voice from inside my head. If you want just 10% of that amount, that'd be like five grand. Then you could just put it back. It's like borrowing. I agreed. I took the whole $50,000. I told the tellers I was going to lunch and to do some prospecting. Managers were expected to do that and they were, they were used to my three, three hour lunches. The money hung heavy in my pockets, even in my belt strap. I felt like a drug runner going through customs. The casino was a 10-minute drive, Motor City Casino. This is in Detroit. The girls there, the, the, the waitresses, they wear these tight little leotards. I went out with a couple of them, really nice girls. But when I gambled, I wanted to be anonymous. I didn't want to know the dealer, the waitresses, the Asian guy sitting next to me. I hated to leave a table and hear, sorry about that, Shannon. What you sorry for, for what? I'm the one that's sorry. I sat down at the blackjack table. I bought in for 10,020s. It takes a little time to count 10,020s. It brings a small crowd, which I don't care for, but whatever. That 10,000 goes up and it goes down. Goes up and it goes down. And then down. And then it's gone. The crowd lets out a sigh. I set another 10,000 on the table. I'm chasing, it goes fast. I get up from the table and the crowd is showing remorse. That voice, you gotta get away from these losers. I go up to the high roller room on the top floor. My pockets are lighter, but still 30,000 heavy. That voice, I just gotta change my strategy, change my game up, backward. I set the whole 30,000 on the table. It takes them a long time to count $30,000. It brings out some guys who have to wear suits like me. I win. I win close to the 50 back. Then I get a call from work. I don't answer, of course. Then I get another call. I listen to the voicemail. They need me back at work for something. I'm short, just a little bit. I could leave with what I have and deal with it, or I can go for it. I feel good about this next bet. Go for it, go for it. I put the biggest bet I had played yet, enough to win the money back and leave happy. Now, Baccarat is a card game, three possible outcomes. Player wins, banker wins, or tie, which is a push. My money is on banker. The dealer deals the cards. I lose.
And then I chase till I lose the whole $50,000. I get up from the table and the dealer says, better luck, Shannon. I look at him, look at the table, but I don't say anything, I just walk away. I walk through the lights, the sounds, the people, the smoke, and out the door to fresher air. It feels surreal like when I went skydiving, like when I was shot at, like I'm watching this on TV. I sit quiet in my car. Idiot. I called my best friend. He had done time years ago for what is really not my place to say. He said, nonviolent crime, first time offender. I can't see you doing more than a year. A year? I just went to the movies at the mall. I just ate riblets at Applebee's. It's funny, the simple luxuries you think of when you think of losing a year or more. He said, I can't see more than a year in a city like Detroit. In Detroit, there's no room in the jails for losing chumps like you. <laughs> Humor always makes me feel better. At least for a little while, gives me a perspective, but I still had to deal with what I'd done. That was a lot of money. I called my job, and by now they know that the money is gone. I'm talking to the regional president, and I tell him I'm sorry. I'll be in the mall to turn myself in. What he says is surprising. He says, uh, Shannon, don't do anything stupid. It's only money. It's not the end of the world, son. You don't know how much I appreciate him for saying that. He didn't have to say that. The next day, I keep my word. I go to work at the grocery store, bank, in my crumpled up suit, and two officers take me away in handcuffs. Now this is gonna sound bad, but thank God Detroit did have much worse problems than a grocery store bank embezzling idiot like myself. I got one day. Five years probation. It's been hard, but I paid all the money back. I still hear that voice when I drive by an Indian reservation, go for it. When I get an extra $500 that my wife doesn't know about, she's a former VIP cocktail waitress, by the way. I met her at the casino. Those tight black leotards, I'm trying to tell you. Uh, even when I play cards with our daughter, can't lose. I still hear that voice. I started going to the meetings. Lady at the meeting said, addiction is insidious. 
Now, I'm being real with you. I, I had to look it up. I looked it up. Insidious. That's a good word. Shannon Case. Big love and thanks to Shannon Kaysen. Original score was written by Alex Mandel, performed by Alex Mandel, David Brandt, and Tim Frick. You can learn more about what Shannon is up to at snapjudgment.org. Where else, dear friends, where else are you going to rob a bank and get but just one day time served? Only at Snap Judgment. Be the most interesting person your friends know. Subscribe to the Snap Judgment podcast. Amazing stories from all over the world. Even better. You can rock a Snap Judgment t-shirt and watch all the oohs and ahs when you stroll down the street. Available right now at snapjudgment.org. Snap is brought to you by the team that always picks the right card. Except, of course, for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. I try to tell him they don't play Uno at these Vegas casinos. He won't listen. There's Anna Sussman, Nancy Lopez, Pat Masini Miller, Renzo Gorio, Shayna Sheely, Taylor DeCott, Flo Wiley, John Fasile, Marissa Dodge, Regina Beriaco, David Exame, Bo Walsh, and Annie Nguyen. Now, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, after the big score with sacks of cash, you could jump into the getaway car that won't get away. And you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRX.